Christopher Miller. Today's guest is the board chair and founding board member for the National Coalition for Community Capital, which focuses on helping underserved people and communities access capital. Chris will speak at, and NC3 is a co-host for, Supercrowd22. Chris will also share insights about his superpower. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show. Chris, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's I am so excited to have this opportunity to get to know you better. Well, uh, the feeling is mutual. Uh, I hope that I don't disappoint you. I anticipate that I will. That's typically what happens when I first meet folks. So. <laughs> Uh, I'm beginning to appreciate you have a great sense of humor, Chris, and uh, I appreciate that a lot. Uh, how did you, uh, what's the story of the founding of NC3, the National Coalition for Community Capital? Yeah, it's it's a great story and, and really a lot of fun. Uh, so the, the condensed version is that... Um, uh, a, a group of folks from across the country that didn't know each other um, all found uh, kind of a similar path to this idea of local investing, retention of local capital, equitable uh, opportunity, equitable access to capital. Uh, and we all got there from different spaces. Uh, and um across the country, literally from the East Coast to the West Coast, um, we got connected uh, often through uh, a common uh, friend uh, or an invitation to speak someplace. Uh, and we ended up coalescing together in Portland, Oregon in 2016, uh, where one of our colleagues put on a conference uh, and uh, at that point, we said, hey, um, we, we discovered we were all having the same conversations. You know, we were all um, having that conversation about what is this? Um, you know, why should I worry about it? What's impressive about it? You know, why should I spend any time on it? And then, you know, in short order, most of us found the sort of local champions or folks that we were working with in the sector we happened to be working in. Uh, and we, we all immediately saw the value of it. Uh, and so essentially in those conversations, when we started bumping into one another at conferences and then in Portland, we agreed that we could save others some of the time that we were going through uh, if we could band together, uh, start identifying best practices and how do we move it forward. And, and that was really it for, for me my path went through, so I was an economic developer uh, in a small community in Southern Michigan uh, with zero economic development training. <laughs> uh, and really, uh, and, and really what was core for NC3, it wasn't our relationship to capital, it was our relationship to community. Uh, and so I was a big community advocate. I didn't know that I was exactly. Um, uh, when I moved, moved into this community uh, 22 years ago. But um, it became clear to me if I wanted to improve the quality of life for my family and the people in the community that I was with, that there were some things that could be done and they were economic development uh, activities for me. So I ended up, I was an appointed and an elected local city official 
and then went to work for the city as the economic developer. And that was right at the time of the uh, Great uh, Recession, which is a really lousy time to become an economic developer. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Although I, I, I think the challenges and constraints of that time uh, really brought me to this place where I identified I really wanted to focus a lot on the idea of, of community through the lens of local capital. And um, uh, several of us in the community, I, I had heard this steady drumbeat in conferences and workshops, nobody is coming to rescue you, you're gonna have to do this on your own. Uh, even existing businesses in my community that had longstanding relationships with banks were having trouble, trouble accessing capital, et cetera. The Jobs Act was uh, just passed when several of us started reading books to find out, you know, how, how do we how do we do this new aggregation of capital and, you know, what can we do? And uh, the book that I read that really uh, that really brought me into the fold was uh, Amy Cortese's Locovesting. Uh, and uh, so several of us in the community were reading this book, uh, which for folks that don't know is essentially a series of sort of gentle case studies uh, of communities across the country that found an atypical way to aggregate local capital and invest it and save a business they were gonna lose or fight off a business that they didn't want or whatever it might've been. There were a variety of great stories in it. Uh, anyway, with great naivete, we invited Amy to attend a uh, quarterly economic development luncheon that we were doing in the county. And uh, surprisingly, she came. Uh, and uh, I, I think it had to do with the fact that she was visiting Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, about 40 miles away and uh, could come and see us. But in any event, uh, she came down and spoke to a group of 50 or 60 people that were in the room uh, and the, there were two really specific things that happened from that visit. One was a group of folks that had been talking about buying a historic building in downtown Adrian, which was kind of spiraling down at that point in time. We've got a beautiful traditional downtown communities, about 22,000 folks. Uh, so they said at the end of the meeting, let's stop talking about investing and let's do it. They pulled together two dozen local investors, bought a building, uh, it immediately started cash flowing. They basically saved it from foreclosure, saved the business from being kicked out, saved the residents in the upper floors from being kicked out. They bought that building. We got them some facade money. They fixed the facade up. We got them some money for additional apartments in the third floor. They put additional apartments in the third floor. They bought a second building. Then they bought a third building. They did the same thing on all of those. And so it really was a huge impact in downtown. Uh, and really accelerated what we had just started to see kind of trickle forward just before the recession, which was uh, some investment in the community. The other thing that happened was I love the idea of investment crowdfunding. And um, so Amy connected me, we became and remained friends and Amy connected me with some smart folks across the country, uh, notably in Georgia that were working on their own investment crowdfunding, intrastate investment crowdfunding laws. Uh, and so I took that idea to my local representatives uh, from the Michigan House and Senate. Uh, and my house rep was visionary enough to see, wow, there's some something here. Uh, and so uh, actually together with a team of students from the University of Michigan, the Ford School for Public Policy there, uh, we wrote a white paper that explained what crowdfunding was 
and what investment crowdfunding was for all the Michigan legislature legislators uh, and got a bill introduced uh, and passed in short order at the end of 2013. The governor signed it. Michigan was the fourth state in the nation to get such a bill. Um, today, over 36, 37 states, I think California recently joined the fold, has an intrastate investment crowdfunding law to essentially allow what the JOBS Act allowed, allowed nationally, but in states. And this was prior to the JOBS Act actually getting empowered. Uh, so because it was early on and because we had a really good bill that had a substantial investment on the investor side that could be made and a substantial amount of accumulation of non-accredited investor funds for the business, um, a number of other states used what we did as a model and that got me invited uh, around to talk about it. And that's how I ended up bumping into other colleagues at NC3 uh, and other colleagues did different things. Some of them were working uh, in the legal side of the issue. Um, others did something similar. Uh, actually, Amy uh, Cortese ended up being one of our founding board members, as did Michael Schumann, another prolific writer and one of the one of the very earliest voices in the wilderness talking about uh, local capital and the retention and reinvestment of local capital. So um, so. That's that's the that's the story essentially. Well, it's a it's a phenomenal story, and uh, <clears throat> I'm I'm so glad that you shared that because uh, I think it, the story answers a, an interesting question uh, that I had, uh, which is how uh, someone who spent his career or spends his career uh, on local issues ended up forming a national organization and. Uh, of course, the national organization is all about community, so it makes perfect sense. And of course, someone who's been as, as successful as you in local community building would have would be the one to, to lead a national organization of community capital. So uh, thank you. Thank you very much sure. for sharing that story. Um, I wonder now that you've been at this for a while, if you have favorite stories, examples of how people are using crowdfunding and other related tools to actually uh, support uh, their local uh, community uh, in ways that uh, you're excited about. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there are, there are lots of them. And of course, the interesting uh, kind of part, the evolution of that is that initially we didn't have lots of stories to tell. And initially we had, you know, an abstract idea to discuss uh, and there, there had been a few places uh, that had done um, and, and actually continue to do really good work. The Lion Group up in the northwest part of the country was definitely inspirational for us. But in, in terms of um, sort of Michigan or, or uh, others in our region that happened, there were, there were several that were pretty exciting. So the, the first business that raise funds with Michigan's investment crowdfunding law was a neighboring community of mine, uh, the city of Tecumseh, the second largest community in our, in our uh, uh, county. About 10,000 folks live there. And uh, when the bill, when Michigan's bill was actually introduced in the Michigan legislature, I reached out to a colleague who was the economic developer in Tecumseh and said, she had been telling me about these guys that were wanted to open up a microbrewery in the community, and they were having a terrible time raising capital, even though they'd done a friends and family raise and had purchased the building they were going to use. Um, 
Uh, and, and anyway, I said, do you mind if I talk to them? <laughs> and uh, so we, we, uh, I, I met him at a local fair in, in, uh, in Tecumseh and we just chatted for a while. And being entrepreneurs, uh, they immediately saw the opportunity and value. You know, entrepreneurs are used to finding atypical ways to do things and up, over, around, or through obstacles. Uh, and uh, and uh, so they, they got excited about it. And again, in, with great, uh, in a very naive statement, I said, you could be the first business to raise money with our new law. And as it turns out, that was precisely what happened. So that following spring, uh, they went out and raised $175,000 from 23 uh, investors, most of them in their community or very local uh, within uh, 20 or 30 miles of the community. They, uh, that enabled them to actually buy a contiguous building to the one they originally owned, which would have been pretty constrained in terms of what their business could have been. Uh, and uh, they, uh, they had a, a revenue share model, which again, for folks that don't know that, uh, essentially a percentage of the revenue is set aside to repay the investors. So the more revenue it's generated, the more quickly it's generated, the more quickly the investors get paid off. So it's a really lovely community model. So their offer was a 10%, 10% annual return on investment uh, over five years. They actually paid off all of their investors in about three and a half years. Um, partway through that, uh, they had a lot of demand um, really to do more production. Uh, so they went back to their original investor group, borrowed some additional money, bought a second building uh, and equipment uh, and started producing. I think they ended up distributing to about 30 or 40 area uh, businesses. Uh, and, um, and then at the beginning of COVID, they went back again to that original investor group uh, and borrowed $90,000 uh, with which they purchased a food truck uh, to kind of take the food out to the community and their and the beverages out to the community. So, so it, that's a really great story, you know, and it's a significant employer in, in downtown Tecumseh now. Um, so that, that's one of my favorites. Uh, another really cool project that happened also in Michigan was um, um, one of my colleagues at the Michigan Municipal League, which is the organization that represents all of the cities and villages in the state. Uh, he partnered up with uh, three guys uh, in the Detroit area. Uh, they had an interest in soccer um, and uh, they for formed the Detroit City Football Club. Uh, they went to a small uh, enclave community. So within the city of Detroit, uh, the, uh, an entire city, the city of Hamtramck exists. Uh, and it's got a really interesting history, but suffice to say for this, they had an old field there that actually FDR uh, inaugurated um, after the, after, during the, the uh, Great Depression or after the Great Depression uh, period. And um, the field had lain fallow, we'll say that. Uh, and the school district owned it, didn't have much money. So they worked out a deal if they could raise money that they would get a 10 year dollar a year lease on the building to have uh, the Detroit City Football Club, which was a semi pro kind of level football club. So they raised about $775,000 from people all over the state that thought this was a wonderful idea. They launched the football club and it's been gangbusters since then. So another really terrific story. Uh, wow. Wonderful for the community. Um, yeah. And, and there's a zillion of them. That's the thing. We've retold those stories hundreds of times. Uh, but there, there are lots of other great stories uh, to tell, including actually my wife and her partners who owned up a 
She's a career-long educator and uh, retired from her work at a local university to open a downtown cafe and candy shop in the middle of COVID. Uh, and uh, so they, they passed their first year uh, in November this last year. We raised $120,000 from 47 investors from seven different states to uh, create that cafe and uh, coffee and candy shop in downtown Adrian. Oh, that's great. I mean, just it, it is exciting to see all the different uh, successes and the impacts they have on communities. Uh, tell us a little bit about NC3 in terms of the activities, right? What are the, what do members get? And so maybe at reframing this question, what's the sales pitch to join uh, NC3. Yeah. So uh, NC3 is a 501c3, so it's a nonprofit and it really exists um, to accelerate the adoption of, of community capital, the practices of community capital. And so, um, you know, we're largely education oriented. We've done a number of conferences. Our, our last one was in Detroit, actually, in 2019. We've done um, We've done programs where we come into communities and meet with the community leaders for a couple of days. We call them roundtables. We've done those in Washington, D.C., in Vermont, in Michigan, and the West Coast. Um, we also, uh, this last year, have, we actually, this just this last year, hired our first full-time staff member. We had part-time directors uh, for several years and volunteer directors uh, even prior to that. Um, but um, we were able to leverage some grant funding uh, and uh, hire a full-time director this past year, a young woman, uh, Mika Fisher, who was working for the city of New York, the deputy mayor's office, where she ran a co-op program. I, I think the largest uh, co-op program in the country. It was, a, if memory serves, about a $13 million budget to try and convert a lot of those, uh, that silver tsunami that we've heard about, the retiring baby boomers who are leaving businesses, and in many cases, selling them uh, to competitors or venture capitalists or, uh, you know, folks that uh, are really interested in taking the assets and running and uh, instead looking, finding ways for the the um, the employees of the business to create a co-op uh, there. So that was Mika's work there. But so um, she is she has kicked us up a notch for sure. Uh, but I, I think um in addition to the education work, we picked up uh, a colleague's uh, website last year that's the Local Investment Resource Center, uh, and we have free materials on there, and we are curating those right now and improving those. Uh, there are some uh, parts of it that are really, really got really strong. One of our founding board members, in fact, uh, our first uh, our first board chair is a colleague of mine, a Michigan colleague, Angela Barbesh, who is an investment advisor. She came at this from the investment advisor perspective where her clients a decade or so ago were saying, we want to invest locally. We want to do something in our own community, not just send money out to other worthy causes, but places. And of course, that's a clarion call that a lot of foundations have been hearing these days, that such hence the rise of impact investing in the foundation world where they're looking to do good locally. Uh, and so, um, so in any event, so um, we've got a great section uh, that Angela put together for investment advisors or folks who aspire to be investment advisors, why you should pay attention to this movement and how to integrate it in your business. So 
the other things that we have done really have been around policy. Uh, so um, we got a, a grant a couple of years ago uh, and produced a, uh, an ebook about community investment funds. We, we've, we've talked often about that we want to be a big tent organization. You know, there's a, there's a lot of folks from a lot of different philosophical perspectives that are interested in the movement. And, uh, you know, it gained a lot of traction in COVID because I think the, you know, the, the longstanding hurts uh, that had been done to a lot of communities became uh, painfully clear to a lot more folks. And the income disparity became painfully clear to a lot more folks. And the really inefficiencies in that system became clear to folks. So, but, um, so we've, we've tried to partner very broadly uh, both with traditional sources of capital and with friends on the other side that want to get rid of capital altogether, you know. So it's you know it's a, it's a really interesting mix, and so we've we've attempted to to do that, and so that a lot of that has involved policy and community investment funds. We think uh, are a real opportunity that doesn't exist right now, essentially because the structures that were put in place by the 1940s Investment Company Act uh, don't build wealth, especially for uh, non-accredited investors. Uh, and uh, for us, that's a very core uh, tenet of what we're doing is we're looking to build individual wealth uh, and individual community wealth, in particular in those communities and individuals that have not been well served by the existing system. So uh, so we have, uh, we produced this ebook uh, that uh, explained various permutations of community investment funds and how those that are out there could be used. I know you've talked with my colleague out at the Boston Impact Investment, Deborah Fries, uh, yeah. uh, in the past, and uh, Deborah has made um, charitable loan funds dance and spin in ways that nobody else even could conceive of. Uh, and it's terrific what what they've done. From our perspective, even those funds, however, struggle to build wealth in local communities, and uh, so uh, so out of that community investment fund work we have proposed to the securities and exchange commission it's in the investment management uh, division right now a proposal for what we call the 21st century community investment fund uh, and it would allow essentially the downscaling of, of community investment funds right now if you don't have a community of about fifty thousand people there isn't any community investment fund that can work uh, and so that doesn't make sense uh, when so many of us live in communities that are under 50,000 in many cases significantly under. So, And those smaller so communities more desperately need it, right? Exactly. Uh, exactly. I mean, and they all do. I mean, Detroit is in, you know, our, our largest city is in the need of the most capital of everybody because, again, this, the system did not serve Detroit well at all. But many, many uh, rural communities across the country uh, need that as well. So anyway, so we have a proposal in front of them to create, essentially um, do an exemptive order, allow us to create some pilot projects around these community investment funds that wouldn't be sector limited right now. If you set up a real estate investment fund and then you want to support a business, you have to set up a whole new fund to do that, a whole new set of costs. It's, again, it's just cost prohibitive to do those kinds of things. Uh, so you know, we've said we want a fund that treats everybody equally um, and provides everyone the same opportunity to build wealth, not just provides an advantage to accredited investors. Um, and so we have a, a proposal like that right now in front of the SEC, uh, and we're, we're hoping for traction. They just got a new um, 
director for the IM division. And so we're hoping that uh, he uh, allows that to move forward. But we've got, we've also made a similar proposal to the Senate Banking Committee uh, that last year asked for proposals to increase the number of retail investors. That's the the nice euphemism that they're using these days to refer to non-accredited investors. But um, so we have a proposal there. And right now we're also working on a project to basically um, take a statewide request to the SEC to allow uh, an intrastate exemption uh, that would let states create community investment funds uh, that would be appropriate for their states. And that would be something, again, that that would be scalable down to communities of all sizes. We've got to do some work around that, but um, I'm excited about that piece. So, so that's sort of generally uh, what we've done. Advocated. We're also um, we're also part of the group that has uh, done the Main Street Journal, which uh, Michael Schumann is a partner in that with us. Uh, and uh, so, um, NC3 has had a prominent role in that, and that's getting the word out, gathering that. I think the other thing that Mika is doing right now that we're really pleased with is she's basically doing a listening tour. So she's reaching out to uh, organizations that have um, that have already been in contact with us and others that have not that we know are doing really good work and learning what we can, you know, where can we support the work that you're doing? What kinds of things could we do organizationally that would help others, other communities, other organizations that want to do those kinds of things? Well, fantastic. I mean, just so many different things advocating for so much stuff that that matters. I I, I commend you for that. I'm grateful that you personally have agreed to speak at uh, Super Crowd 22 in September. Uh, Mika has as well. Uh, I'm thrilled to have her added to the agenda. And uh, and NC3 has agreed to co-host as well. And so we are we're thrilled to have you involved with uh, with that, and I, I really thank you for your, your commitment there. Well, it feels a lot to us like you're throwing a really cool party, and you've invited us to it. So uh, we're we're <laughs> grateful for we're grateful for the opportunity and the connections. You know, so much of what we're all doing in this space is is finding uh, strategically aligned and mission aligned partners who want to do it. There's a lot of one of the interesting things this last year. I was a um, a fellow with the Michigan State University Regional Economic Innovation Office. And my fellowship was around this local investing movement and community capital. And so I, I had a chance to talk to a hundred and some communities across the state of Michigan. It was state-based. State and, and I found here, and we've found other places nationally where people are sort of laboring along on their own, doing amazing things, just incredible stuff. Uh, and uh, against really tall odds uh, and, you know, finding a few people to work with them and then moving something significant forward. And so we want to connect that as much as possible. Deborah Fries actually talks about uh, Deborah's curve. I don't know if she spoke with you about that or not, but essentially it was looking at change, systemic change and how it happens. Uh, And she did a fair amount of work on that before she launched the Boston Impact Initiative. And, uh, you know, what what, what she learned from that was that, uh, you know, if we're really going to do that kind of change, it has to come from the ground up. And so, and then at some point, all of those, uh, all those smokes on the, those folks on the bottom suddenly connect together and then you're a thing and you are to be reckoned with. And I think that's, that's really that process that we're in right now is connecting many that are doing it, supporting those that are doing it, 
trying to find ways to help them move more quickly than we've moved uh, in the process and um, and just bringing opportunity to a lot of folks that haven't had opportunity uh, uh, in, in a way that feels a lot more democratic um, than it has been historically. Oh, fantastic. I, I, I um... Uh, I'm reminded as we talk a little bit about Deborah that I need to invite her to speak at the conference. She'd be great, uh, great addition yeah, to the terrific. roster. I'll I'll reach out. Uh, yeah. But uh, she she I think um, is uh, the most forward thinking person I've ever met in terms of the impact investing community. Uh, uh, she, she just broke my mind when I heard her speak the first time and yeah. digging into her ideas it really was some profound stuff. So yeah, yes. she'd be a great addition. Um, you have done some remarkable things uh, and I'm honored to know you, honored to add you now to my uh, network and uh, thrilled about that. But what do you see as your superpower? <laughs> um, and I, I, um, I, I hadn't read you before I had met you, by the way. So, which I shouldn't admit that, but you know what that. <laughs> it's all right. And 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 I, I, I noted in in reading uh, you that you surprised everyone with that. So of course I thought about it a little bit uh, since I knew we were going to chat, and I thought perhaps you would ask me that question. So, um, so I, I think there are a couple of things. And, you know, I, I hesitate to, to label them superpowers because uh, that doesn't feel right. Uh, but there are some things that um, that I can do reasonably well and uh, and some values that were instilled in me as a young man, as a very young man. Uh, like on Halloween when I was a kid, I had a I had a little milk carton that I connected. I collected money that uh, pennies that we sent to the UN for UNICEF when I was a kid. And that was, that was equally important to uh, whatever candy I could accumulate in the bag. And that was, that was my mother and my father and those kinds of things. So, but I, I think what I, what I've sort of recognized uh, and it's been by happenstance that for some reason um, uh, people will listen when I say stuff. And if I say it well, they might think about doing it. Uh, and so, you know, that that surprised me when I first recognized that happening several decades ago. Um, but um, that that was pretty interesting. Uh, so, I, I, but I, I think there are really two kind of core things in terms of the, the things that I have been fortunate to be involved in. And I, I really feel uh, honored for the opportunity to be in the place that I am right now. You know, if if others hadn't done work, if we weren't at a particular place in the evolution of the country, I wouldn't have this work to do. And so, um, there's there's a lot of uh, happenstance, uh, you know, on that front. But I, I think I've been able. I I'm, I'm a terrible artist, uh, so stick figures are a challenge for me. But I have a great appreciation for people that have it. But it seems to me that those folks have a vision. Uh, they can see a thing. They can look at a rock and see shadows and such that I don't even recognize. And then they can replicate those out. And so one of the things that I, I think has been helpful for me in this movement, I've been able to envision what this looks like um, when we have much more democratic economies and we have much more equitable access to capital and uh, and 
So I, I saw that, I think, quite early on and uh, not as early as Michael Schumann and not as early as Amy Cortese. But once I heard them and saw them, it immediately resonated with me and I could see it and I could imagine some things that could happen as a result of that. And then um, I think I've got pretty good communication skills. I actually taught speech and debate at one point in time, and that, that didn't hurt matters at all. But um, but I enjoy it. I, and that's that's a heritage. I had a grandfather who was a great storyteller, and I listened to his stories all of my growing up. And uh, I was also a big reader, so I've read a lot. I love words. I love language. Um, I actually love good government, uh, which I'm not sure that's out there. But anyway, um, <laughs> so... Um, so I think those things um, and and really a, a fundamental desire to do things which benefit others. I think, you know, that's a that's a piece of it. And when I was working for the city of Adrian, the projects that we did, I was always thinking about, could this be replicated someplace else? And, and in fact, if, it, if I didn't think it could be replicated someplace else, I typically wouldn't pursue it uh, because I, I, I wanted to be able to have an impact, uh, you know, broader than my own community. Um, so I guess that that's pretty much summarizes. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's great. I, I want to drill down just a little bit on, on this vision uh, ability. As you say, you, you had the ability to, to see what community capital really could be and become and the impact that would have. Uh, clearly that has led to the creation of an organization that has fostered community uh, investing that has really made a tremendous difference uh, for countless people across the country. How would you coach people to be able to do that? How do you develop the ability to see what is there and create it? That's a great question. Um, and of course, I expected you to ask great questions, you know. But uh, um, you know, I, I think it's a I think it's a combination of things, um, and definitely reading and considering ideas that aren't yours is one of them. Uh, I was a big science fiction uh, reader and C.S. Lewis reader uh, and Tolkien reader and that sort of thing. I think again, envisioning something that's that's different from what you have now, if, you know that that kind of thing definitely helps. I think being in a creative environment is remarkable. I, I, I remember reading not too long ago in Dwell magazine. I don't know if you know Dwell, but it's a design magazine. And once in a while, they'll do a feature on somebody uh, who's just really remarkable uh, in a field. And I remember reading about a, a designer woman uh, in that. And she talked about uh, trusting her intuition. And uh, sort of what comes to her in the night uh, sort of thing. And for me, that's really big. Uh, I often wake up at four or five in the morning and have some ideas. Some of those are really lousy ideas, but uh, some, some aren't so bad. And I, so I think being open to those possibilities, putting yourself in a creative environment, my, my sort of day job, I'm, I'm an in-house consultant for a high-tech telescope manufacturing firm. Sounds a little incongruent to what I'm doing in my world, but there, it's a really interesting space. It's the most entrepreneurial business I've ever seen. Uh, and um, they're, they're like, there is no bad idea. There's no bad question. Everybody participates. They solve every problem with a team of really smart people and nobody has pride of authorship. The goal is how do we do this? How do we fix this? How do we create some new thing? And I think 
that environment is really powerful. I, you know, the more I think, and, and a lot of the folks that I see that are doing really creative things have found themselves or have created their own environments where that kind of thing happens. And so I think, you know, as, as humans and organizations, um, we can encourage that kind of stuff. One of the things that I always used to rail against was, and I still hear it, although not as often as I used to, maybe because they don't say it if I'm in the room, but uh, let's not reinvent the wheel. I've, I've heard that thousands of times. And during the recession, I heard it a thousand times. And I said, no, you know, if, if the people that had sledges said, let's not, and let's not reinvent the sledge, we wouldn't have had the wheel. So we definitely need to say, let's reinvent the wheel. So whenever anybody says that in my presence, I say, sorry, I have to stop you. That's not right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and so so I think building that kind of culture where we don't get constrained, you know, in a lot of places, a lot of organizations, we tried that once, you know, uh, and, and that's just bad thinking uh, because the world isn't the same today uh, as it was yesterday. And um, because we tried it once, you know, and it didn't work, it does not mean it, it's a bad idea because it could have been badly executed. It could have been bad timing, that sort of thing. So I think being mindful of that and always open to that. Aside from everything else, it's way more fun uh, than doing the same thing all the time. And uh, I, I talk to people about that all the time. When I'm talking to young people, I say, find something you love. Right now you've got incredible opportunities. You know, a hundred years ago, you had six jobs you could have picked from. Now you can do anything in the world. And so, you know, find something that excites you, that resonates with you, that allows your brain to do the unique and amazing things it's capable of and pursue that because you can find a way to make a living doing something that you're passionate about. It's way more fun to live that way than, oh, uh, you know, Wednesday was never over the hump day. I was never, thank heavens, it's Friday day. That just wasn't me. Uh, I've been fortunate to have a variety of, of kinds of jobs that I could really enjoy and learn from and develop and grow in. So. That was a really long answer to a really short, clear question. <laughs> That's a great answer. Great answer. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, be with us today. Before we wrap up, I'd, I'd like to invite you to take a minute and tell people how they can learn more about NC3 and how they can connect with you personally. For sure. Um, so we, we have a website and we'd love for you to go to that. Uh, we'd also like you to be patient with us. Uh, we are a startup nonprofit, and so it isn't as beautiful as it's going to be. Mika's actually, that's another project she's working on right now is getting our website uh, a little bit more better, a little bit more better. Yeah, uh, that's great English. Uh, uh, a little bit more. You're a great communicator. And, and more attractive. Yeah, right. Uh, so, uh, so it's uh, nc3now.org, uh, and so we'd love folks uh, to go there. Um, so uh, I have a NC3 email. So Chris at nc3now.org is a great way to get in touch with me. Uh, and um, yeah, that that would be great. I'm on LinkedIn, so you could you could find me on LinkedIn as well. Uh, I don't do a lot of other uh, social media because I don't have time. Uh, but uh, that's good. Uh, in any event, but glad really glad to meet and communicate with folks. Um, and I, I, I get to have those conversations a lot and they are always meaningful and always add uh, value. I hope to the other side, I know they add value to my side. So, yeah, Fantastic. And uh, if you're uh, speaking to the audience here, if you're interested in, in hearing Chris again, uh, he'll be at SuperCrowd22 uh, on September 15th and 16th. If you want to register for that, visit supercrowd22.com. We'd love to have you there. 
It'd be a great event. Um, Chris, thank you again for being with us today. We're, we're thrilled to have you and we wish you every success in continuing to build community capital around the country. Thank you, Devin. Again, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to ta talk with you and the audience. And uh, I, I'm really looking forward to working together. It's going to be fun. Thank you very much. Now, let's do some good. That sounds great. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.